being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 44 imperial japan part 14 the great waltz the otetsu incident and russo-japanese relations today i'm recording from kyoto japan now a lot of people understand the concept of politicians being in the bag for their donors Even if you're not cynical about it, you understand that politicians are aligned with typically, you know, one industry or the other. The Bushes, of course, advanced the interests of the oil industry. The Koch brothers back a wide range of Republicans who get them favorable tax policies. The banks backed Obama. Like, you can list these out all day, and you can get way more granular, too. But another element to this is how politicians, and more interestingly, unelected officials, are often tilted towards this or that foreign power. Nine times out of ten, this will be out in the open, not a secret. And you can find it out if you do enough digging. Usually you'll be able to see that this general or that cabinet secretary attends certain think tanks or speaks at this or that, you know, particular lobbying group. Sometimes it's Great Britain, sometimes it's Turkey or Saudi Arabia, Israel definitely, and China. And I should be clear, these connections and relationships are not inherently wrong in any meaningful sense, though it would be naive to think that ethics and laws are always observed either, right? And so there are often these factions in government, like for and against a certain power. A certain foreign country. Almost more like cliques, right? And they will often feud, sometimes good-naturedly, other times quite bitterly against each other. These factions often do not have formal membership or lists, but as we discussed, you can usually still figure it out. Like there are pro-Turkish cliques in the United States that people get really weird about if you start asking too many questions. There were pro-detente factions in the United States against the Soviet Union. And there was obviously a pretty big faction against the Soviet Union, right? But a big part of the second Red Scare was essentially not just about the Soviet Union, but it was also a pretext to just kick out or force out the older FDR guys out of the State Department. I've already emphasized how many of these foreign policy factions tend to correspond with whatever industry needs particular access to that given country's resources the most, right? A lot of government inscrutability makes a lot more sense when you realize that the government is kind of like cheese. Cheese, at least good cheese, not the extremely artificial store-bought kind, Cheese is essentially a living organism. It's filled with billions of bacteria of different types, which, in combination with the type of milk, the conditions, and whatever you add, makes cheese. Eating too much cheese will, over time, ruin your teeth because of the bacteria, right? Like, cheese is literally a living organism. Cheese is magical to me. I love cheese, right? But... Just like how cheese is often made in a dark cave, so too are all the important decisions of government. 
And no, I'm not trying to be cute. Like, the my point is that every government has multiple factions, both for their domestic policies and their foreign policy alignments. They're always shifting and realigning depending on the circumstances. They are subject to temporary alliances, grudges, massive shifts, and what have you. Sometimes these factions and alignments stay entirely within the law. And, you know, simply lobby on their behalf. Other times, they break the law in a wide variety of ways, up to and including espionage. What I've been describing, very loosely, is the very field of play that espionage agents play on. And, of course, there's other stuff too, right? There's literally, like, counterintelligence. There's, you know, specifics on, like, certain, you know, military hardware that might not come into this too much, but, like... A lot of espionage is just looking through trade magazines and doing extremely boring surveillance. But so too is espionage also hobnobbing with one faction allied for or against the one you like in a professional setting. Sometimes it looks just like doing networking. Often this is the feel that espionage agents are you know, swimming in. And I would like to talk about one of the greatest spies of all time. I'm getting to the point where I'll be able to do that, but <laughs> I sat down one weekend to write the episodes for that, and I ended up sidetracking myself by writing several more to set it up. So <laughs> we have a couple more episodes before we get to that point, but I think it would be important to go over the great game of diplomacy that was happening to set the stage for World War II. And yes, this is backtracking somewhat to before some of the episodes that, you know, I've been doing with Japan. If you are thinking to yourself, damn Jimmy, why didn't you talk about this sooner? Like, yes, absolutely. But do I look like I have a very thorough master plan? The answer is no. So, Japan and Russia are neighbors. They have always had fundamentally conflicting interests in the sense that, of course, every country wants to maximize access to resources and to maintain strategic and economic advantage. I forget who said it, but essentially states don't have a sense of enough, right? So, like, they will fight to maximize their strategic advantage well beyond what they need to just because usually they can't get enough as they see it. So, Russia and Japan fought a war in 1905. That doesn't mean that literally everyone in Japanese government has been against Russia the entire time. Nothing is ever a monolith, and in fact, there was a pretty large pro-Russian faction before, during, and after the Russo-Japanese War. Even into the Cold War, in fact. So you could go back as far as you want to go to get into Russo-Japanese history. But if we're focusing on the modern era, then there's really just maybe one incident from like the medieval era that's worth talking about. So Japan used to call Russian relations the northern problem, and they would informally call Russia the threat from the north. 
The fears started in the Tokugawa period, which, as a reminder, that's roughly from the 1600s to 1868. The Tokugawa government was particularly concerned about Russia using one of their ethnic minorities, the Ainu people, who were the indigenous peoples of Hokkaido, as well as like the Sakhalin and Kuril, the Sakhalin Islands and going into Kamchatka. The Tokugawa government was worried that the Ainu people, who were not exactly well-treated, would want to align with Russia, and that that could possibly lead to Japan losing Hokkaido. It didn't end up happening, but it was in the cards, right? Separate from this, Japan viewed Russia as backwards and uncivilized, and their diplomats would publish tales about how wild and untamed Russia was. Some of this was true, but some of it obviously was propaganda, and I suppose you could make a better excuse for them if you remember that they had to travel through Siberia to get to Moscow back in like the 18th century. So during this period of time, like hundreds of years, Japanese settlers began to settle all over, and there was a particularly large community of Japanese in Vladivostok. If you're not up on your Russian geography, that's the major city in Russia closest to Japan. It's on the Pacific Ocean. It is also kind of considered part of Manchuria. I mean, that's a, you know, Manchuria, the region, not the political group. Not like a body or a state, right? So the Japanese settlers in that region were involved in the timber, merchant, shipping, oil, and especially the fishing trades in that region. And we are talking about big business here. We're talking about Mitsui and Mitsubishi in the mix, involved in the economic expansion of this region. So, like we discussed, there were pro- and anti-Russian factions in Japan. Always have been, probably always will be. But during this period, as in we're talking the 19th century, the faction that wanted rapprochement with what was then Imperial Russia, why they were particularly funded and backed by Big Fish, which is to say the powerful Japanese fishing industry, which had major interests there. How shocking, right? Russia and Japan fought, especially over their borders. We're talking mainly the prizes of Korea and Manchuria. The way this played out in the late 19th century was through the construction of railroads. Russian interests were constructing the famous Trans-Siberian Railway, and of course, Japan was working on the South Manchuria Railway. Russia was building theirs in order to try and cut England out of the China market. And the railway was a way for them to also reinforce their eastern borders without a direct maritime route, which they didn't have, which the British Navy could easily cut off. That is why Russia has always been so particularly invested in trains, right? But Japan knew that it wasn't just about cutting out England. The railway could also be used to reinforce the region against the Japanese. Japan viewed Russia attempting to colonize Manchuria, Mongolia, Korea, and China, and of course why Korea is just 120 miles away from Kyushu, why they're practically knocking at the door. 
It was in this tense climate that the Tsarevich, the future Emperor Nicholas II, traveled to Japan to celebrate the opening of the Trans-Siberian Railway in 1891. When he did this, Nikolai was just 23 years old. And this was largely a ceremonial event, right? But Nikolai was naturally accompanied by secret agents who observed and wrote everything down. And I'm not being, like, conspiratorial, right? That's just true for any monarch going anywhere. But, because of that, the entire trip and the events on it are extremely well documented. So, Nikolai visited Russian naval officers who were stationed at Nagasaki. An interesting footnote is that these naval officers had acquired temporary Japanese wives. As in, like, contracted, right? Like, almost like a long-term prostitute or concubine, you know. I am in a quantum state of judging and refraining from judging, right? But reportedly, Nikolai wanted to get a temporary Japanese wife himself. Supposedly, he did not have time, however. On this trip, he did have time to get a absolutely sick dragon tattoo on his arm. You can see it in photos. Emperor Nicholas II had a kick-ass dragon tattoo. In fact, he wasn't even the first prince to get a tattoo, like European prince. The English princes Albert and George also got tattoos in Yokohama. Now, this kind of freaked the Japanese out because tattoos in Japan were largely just for criminals. <laughs> Imagine, like, <laughs> I guess if anything it might, you know, show the Japanese that the British are nothing but pirates, right? Now, interestingly, the delegation then went to Kyushu, which is not normally on the list of sites that foreign dignitaries visit. The Japanese public thought that was super weird, and rumors started to circulate that the Russians had secretly brought Saigo Takamori with them to start a new rebellion against the Meiji government. I have not talked about him, but... Saigo Takamori had led the Satsuma Rebellion in 1877. He probably died, but there was always rumors that he had actually survived and fled to Russia. The Japanese had fears, too, about the size of the flotilla that accompanied the Tsarevich. They came with seven battleships. These paranoid and somewhat justified fears were the context for what happened next. While they were traveling in Kyoto, the Tsarevich was attacked by a man named Sanso Suda, who was one of the Japanese policemen escorting him around. Suda swung a sword at the Tsarevich's face. The blade slid across his bowler hat and nicked his forehead. Two of the Japanese rickshaw cart drivers jumped and threw themselves at Suda. If we read Nikolai's diary, he wrote that he jumped off of the carriage and no one tried to detain Suda at first. Sometime later, Nicholas's cousin, Prince George of Greece and Denmark, knocked the sword out of Suda's hand. 
Nikolai would end up with a three and a half inch scar on his forehead because of this attack. To call this a massive international incident would be an understatement. The Japanese government was afraid that Russia would use this as a pretext for war. And at this time, it is likely that Russia would have absolutely smoked Japan. Japan basically had to grovel for their lives. There was a long, long list of apologies, which included the resignations of the home minister and the foreign minister. There were literally like 10,000 telegrams sent from Japan wishing the Tsarevich good health. There was even a Japanese woman, Yuko Hatakeyama, who slit her throat with a razor in public, begging forgiveness on behalf of the whole nation. The press called her a valiant woman, praising her patriotism. Emperor Meiji personally asked the Orthodox Bishop of Japan to intervene to help smooth things over. The Japanese Prime Minister advised Emperor Meiji to visit the Tsarevich personally, which he did. Emperor Meiji went to visit the Tsarevich on a Russian warship off the Kobe Harbor. He went as a sign of goodwill because they could have absolutely just kidnapped him if they wanted to. They had dinner, Nikolai and Emperor Meiji, and they shared cigarettes. Emperor Meiji didn't smoke, but he made an exception, and he called this a special cigarette, the cigarette of the world. Nikolai consoled Meiji, saying that the wound was trifling and that there are crazy people everywhere. War had been averted. The Tsarevich was probably more unnerved than he let on, however. He remembered, after all, the numerous attempts on the life of his grandfather, Emperor Alexander II. When you're a monarch, all history is family history to the umpteenth degree, right? Nikolai swore up and down that he would not let the assassination attempt color his attitude of the Japanese. And... For the most part, this appears to be true. However, he would frequently tell Sergei Vita that the Japanese were monkeys. So, you know, make of that what you will. Oh, and you know, you know I gotta spend some time talking about a political assassin, right? One of my favorite topics. So who was Sanso Suda? He was, stop me if you've heard this before, he was from a samurai family, and his family were also prestigious doctors and physicians. What's that? What's that? This is sounding like Nisho Inoue. I don't know. That sounds like a stretch. I mean, there's no reason to think that these same patterns would be important at all. It's probably nothing. What's interesting is that Suda was drafted into the army and had actually fought during the Satsuma Rebellion. He earned an award for his bravery. From what they were able to gather later, Suda was convinced that Nikolai and his delegation were casing the joint, scoping things out, doing recon for an invasion of Japan, in order to put Saigo Takamori in power. Like I mentioned, this was not a totally unfounded fear. I mean, it was, but many newspapers were reporting and discussing this possibility. It wasn't something that his, like, Suda came up as a paranoid fantasy, right? 
So when Suda went on trial, his testimony and the court proceedings kind of point to him having mental illness. However, like always, his mental illness appears to have been culturally informed, and Suda had fixated on the ultra-nationalist slogan, Expel the Foreigners. That's a very famous slogan, by the way. It occurs several times. I'm sure we will talk about it again, especially during the Allied occupation, right? Suda was zealously militaristic. In prison, he died suspiciously quickly. Officially, he died of pneumonia, but it is not entirely clear how or why he died, because he died very quickly of pneumonia, which is, you know, not normal. Now, am I suggesting that Suda may have been a crazy person that elements of the Japanese deep state weaponized to try and kill Nicholas II? Yes, possibly. And if anyone were behind it, it would have been the anti-Russia faction, right? However, I am not entirely sure about this hypothesis because, whether they would have seen it this way or not, the Japanese deep state probably knew that they would lose in a war with Russia. And, to be clear, it's, though not like anyone would have known this at the time, it's not like Nicholas II turned out to be some kind of asset during a war. In fact, quite the opposite, in fact, as World War I and the Russo-Japanese War would later show. No, I think things might be a lot more complicated than a simple conspiracy. Let's get weird for just a minute. And yes, I frequently like to keep straight history and weirdness somewhat separate, but if you'll indulge me. Let's talk about political assassins. The eternally confounding Peter Lavenda wrote about political assassins and their esoteric meaning. And I will quote a couple paragraphs here from him. He who attacks the king is insane, i.e. out of touch with reality. That is why our most famous assassins have all been pronounced crazy and lone. They are insane and not part of a social group. At least not a social group recognized as valid in the kingdom. An attack on the king cannot be seen to originate from within the kingdom, from within the king's reality. It has to come from outside, from the realm of the unreal, the unholy. For if it came from within the kingdom, it would partake of the logic of the kingdom. The other social group that is both crazed and alone is the independent ascetic, the hermit, the yogi, the sorcerer, the shaman. While often providing value to the social group, divination, exorcism of demons, channeling of spiritual forces, this person lives outside the general social structure, in isolation from everyday communication and social intercourse. It is necessary to do so for the forces that they are that are contacted are those from outside the kingdom. The hermit or ascetic is a kind of probe into the other world, the world outside the walls of the kingdom of reality. At times the council is valued, usually though the person is despised, even ridiculed. The independent ascetic is one who breaks the social taboos of the group 
and refrains from social contacts, from eating socially approved foods or from eating at all, from sexual activity, and thus from the gene pool. The non-sexual ascetic does not share in the transfer of property, of real estate, that is so dependent upon marriage and the production of heirs. Or the ascetic may use unconventional sexual practices to reach altered states of consciousness, forms of reality outside the social contract. That political assassination may be sacerdotal in nature, a spiritual or mystical act with all the attendant symbolism, mythology, and invocation of dark forces that it implies, is not really a new notion to the American public, but perhaps it has not been described quite this way before. Why not, then, a mystical motivation for political assassins? It's the dreamers who die by an assassin's hand. Quite often they are killed by men who are dreamers as well. My words here. There is something to this, the idea that monarchs establish consensus reality. In Spanish, that is more clear. The word real, which is related to our word for real or reality, has multiple meanings, including both royal and true. Realtors, you know, real estate, both are related to this. Because in the English system, property rights kind of play the role that the monarch does, but now, I have spoken against the James Shelby Downard mindset that he said that the JFK assassination was some kind of elaborate Freemasonic ritual. I think that's a shitcoat invented by Nazis. But I don't think that the general premise that there are weird esoteric currents that run through political assassinations, I don't think that's false. I think that's true. I think sometimes political assassins, while doing what they do for entirely grounded materialistic reasons and networks that you could trace, actual conspiracies that you could prosecute in a court, I think often they are also clued into some pretty weird wavelengths. Don't get me started on like David Ferry. Don't even get me started. I think that there is a power in madness and madmen. They often pick up more reality than some of us, than the rest of us. They can become attuned to wavelengths that normal people don't pick up on. Some of their obsessions and fixations are obviously demonstrably unhealthy. But sometimes they're on to truths. And an inordinate number of madmen seem to come up with the idea of killing monarchs and politicians on their own. Separately, I think that intelligence services have and continue to weaponize madmen, but I don't think that that's intelligence inventing a phenomenon. I think they're picking up on a pre-existing phenomenon, right? Not creating it ex nihilo. They probably got it from the mafia, where the mafia would convince some madman to go shoot someone. It's a tactic, right? It's like a black art. And it probably wasn't invented by the CIA. Just something to think about. So to get back to the topic at hand, there was an anti-Russian faction in the Japanese government. 
It's not worth going through the list of pro-Russian and anti-Russian faction members because I don't plan to do a deep dive on this particular era, except I note that the pro-Russian faction members included a, included a prime minister, several elder statesmen, and especially the first president of the South Manchuria Railway Company, Shimpei Goto. His exploits would include being the first governor of Taiwan, mayor of Tokyo, first chief scout of the Boy Scouts of Japan, first director of the NHK, Japan's Broadcasting Corporation, and a long list of corporate and cabinet posts. The pro-Russian faction sought peaceful cooperation with Russia over colonizing Korea and Manchuria. They did not want a direct military conflict, which is what the anti-Russia clique wanted. In case you were wondering, yes, this does loosely align with the differences between the control and imperial way factions, though in like a messy kind of way. In 1896, Russia and Japan signed the Yamagata-Lobanov Agreement, which was later followed up by the Nishi-Rosen Agreement of 1898. These agreements were supposed to divide up their spheres of influence in the region, largely giving Russia dibs in Manchuria and giving Japan dibs in Korea, to be crass about it. But, you know, these are crass agreements, so there you go. If the great game of diplomacy were a board game, then the whole board got shaken up and knocked over by the Boxer Rebellion of 1900. The Boxer Rebellion provoked both Russia and Japan to intervene in China, along with all the other Western powers. Another concept that I would like to explore in this series and elsewhere is the idea that secret societies are not necessarily prime movers in history, but are just, I wouldn't say just, but like, are primarily force multipliers. Like, the side that has secret societies has an advantage over the other side. I would caution against being overly fixated on secret societies, though I think most people have a problem not knowing enough about secret societies, but once you learn about them, I don't think it's helpful to fixate that I don't think secret societies are the prime movers of history. It is very hard to argue they don't play a massive role. This is also true for intelligence, right? Intelligence also is not the prime mover of history in most cases. So, guess which side, the pro-Russian or anti-Russian side, guess which side had a secret society? Why, that would be the side that won, the anti-Russian faction. They had a secret society, Kogetsukai, which was started by an enterprising young officer from the Imperial Japanese Army who fought in the First Sino-Japanese War. After that, this officer was brought into military intelligence. He was then sent to serve in the Russian Army for five years. He served from 1897 to 1902. Then he was sent as a military attaché to Moscow. This young officer became fluent in Russian, and while he was in Russia, he attended Russian Orthodox Mass every Sunday for several years. 
It is not clear, though, that he actually joins the Russian Orthodox Church. He was groomed into, or groomed himself, into being one of the leading Russia experts in the Japanese army. And, of course, he played a crucial role during the Russo-Japanese War. This officer was the head of the army's anti-Russia faction. He argued that a war with Russia would secure the territorial integrity of Korea and secure Japan's position in Manchuria. Incidentally, he was entirely right about that. This goal of securing, of going to war with Russia, securing Korea, and securing Manchuria was a lifelong goal for this young officer. And who was the young officer? Gichi Tanaka, who would later become the Prime Minister of Japan. It's interesting to see someone ride a secret society all the way to the top, right? Now, it's an interesting question. Was Tanaka exposed to secret societies in Russia? Did he get the idea for them in Russia? I mean, we know there were secret societies in Japan, but... What did he see in Russia? What would the nature of a secret society he might witness be? It would be interesting to see if any soon-to-be white Russian secret societies pop up anywhere else in the future. Now, I don't have a lot of color or juicy details for the Kogetsukai, unfortunately. But they deliberately brought in a bunch of younger and mid-ranking officers who would all push their generals into constant conflicts in Manchuria. You know, the incidents that we talked about in prior episodes. The generals were, like, too accountable to probably just cause a war, but there's some plausible deniability with all of the younger and mid-ranking officers pushing for that. The Kogetsukai worked with the Kokuryokai, which was the Black Dragon Society, as well as the Roninka the Society for Masterless Ronin, as well as the Tairo Doshikai, the Society for Comrades Against Russia. To quote the historian Tatiana Linkoeva, whose book I will cite in a minute, she wrote, The unifying philosophy of Japanese nationalists was that Japan must contain Russia, expel it from the East, and quote, lay the foundation for a grand continental enterprise taking Manchuria, Mongolia, and Siberia as one region. Unquote. So the Russo-Japanese War of 1905 shook everything up again. The pro-Russian faction had to put their interests on hold, as both factions were pro-Japanese militarists above all. Again, I'm not going to go into the details, but Japan, surprising everyone, kicked Russia's ass, shocking the world, and it won several juicy morsels for Japan. At the Treaty of Portsmouth, Japan won the rights to Korea, which would continue to be somewhat contested by Russia. They won the southern half of the Sakhalin Islands, but most importantly, they won the rights and concessions in southern Manchuria, the least rights to have the Kwantung army be there and the narrow railway zone from Port Arthur to Changchun. This was negotiated without the participation of the Chinese government, though the Qing government would later sign off on it. The Qing government also gave the Japanese the right to build a railway from Antung to Mukden, 
They also gave away timber rights and secretly agreed that the Chinese would not build railway lines parallel to the South Manchuria Railway Company. Imagine in your mind's eye a me, a youth pastor. I spin my chair around backwards and I sit in it and I say, hey, you know who else didn't like secret treaties? A certain Russian bearded type named Ilyich Ulyanov who said that secret treaties were predatory and that states concealed them from the masses as one conceals a venereal disease. Now, Imperial Japan didn't just see the South Manchuria Railway Company as a way to colonize Korea and Manchuria, though it was decidedly that. They also saw it as a bulwark against Russian encroachment, something that they would develop further and quite explicitly with Manchukuo. I think I've made this comparison in the Yoshiko Kawashima episodes, but it is... Manchukuo is kind of like the imagined, projected German settler colonial state in like the Ukraine and the Baltics and Eastern Russia. In 1919, the United States proposed to help China out by buying the South Manchuria Railway Company, which pissed off everyone. No one wanted that. Not the Chinese, <laughs> not the British, not the Russians, especially not the Japanese. This proposal greatly angered Japan. <laughs> Two countries, Russia and Japan, collaborated in squashing America's proposal and their ambitions in the region, which showed both governments, including the pro- and anti-Russian factions, that Japan and Russia could make tactical alliances <laughs> between the new Soviet government and Japan. Japan and Russia were also on the same side against Germans, in the region during World War I, and before and after. They worked together to spy and sabotage and undermine the Germans. Vladivostok became a major hub for the Korean resistance against the Japanese, so the Japanese would often shell Korean camps there. Which, like, just shelling camps of, like, <laughs> like expat immigrants. It's awful. But as World War I ended, it became more and more clear that the Imperial Japanese Army was to be against the Soviet Union, and Japanese big business as a whole was for rapprochement and improved relations with the Soviet Union. What's that? Are you asking me if these economic realities influenced the Imperial Way and Control Faction's positions on the Soviet Union? Why, yes, I believe they did. We will get into that next episode. Let's go over some things for today. We talked about how politicians and unelected officials comprising the government are like a cheese in that they are both bacteria swarming and multiplying. And just like cheese, they can either make things rock hard or gooey and unresistant, depending on the type of bacteria and I guess depending on what kind of cheese you want. Either way, this gets us so much further than pretending that each country is like a monolith with one position shared by everyone in the country, right? And this is the milieu that spies work in. It's also just politics. We talked about how there was a pro-Russia and anti-Russia faction in Japan. 
the pro-Russia faction was backed by Japanese big business, especially fishing, but, you know, just as much by the banks and the other Zaibatsu. The anti-Russia faction was backed by the military, who could literally earn their bread and butter and make their careers fighting Russia. You know all that animosity <laughs> between the Imperial Way faction and big business? This was part of it, right? It should never be underestimated how much of politics is dictated simply by the existence of certain bodies trying to perpetuate themselves. Literally the people, but also like the army, also just companies, right? It's, it's like the whole point. Then we saw how conspiracy theories, quote unquote, abounded in Japan. Remember, literally every society has these, which especially proliferate under stressful conditions. It would be naive to think that the Tsarevich's entourage was not casing Japan just in case, but there's no proof that they were about to invade, or that Saigo Takamori was alive, or that they were planning to back a civil war in Japan. A lone nutjob attacked Nicholas II, but the promptness of his death raised some questions about how alone he was. Then we talked about political assassins as a type of shaman or mystic, somehow on wavelengths that we can't hear as normal people. There's something to that. Those most frequently assassinated, like those types of politicians most assassinated, are those who dream political visions larger than themselves. Frequently, it's people who are dreaming for a better future, however imperfect. And nevertheless, it's true that the assassins, those who kill these idealistic leaders, or at least who are blamed for killing them, also seem to have these same impulses, albeit frequently grubbier and shabbier. It's like the movie The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, in some ways, or at least what they were trying to get at. I don't know what to make of this, but it does kind of seem to be the case. Then we saw how secret societies act as force multipliers in politics, which, as we all know, politics is an extension of war. Then we saw how states will sign secret treaties behind their population's backs and treat the existence of those treaties like syphilis. And if you're saying to yourself, Jimmy, this is all great stuff, but why didn't you talk about this two months ago? You're not going in chronological order. What can I say? I try my best. <laughs> but long-term planning is not one of my skills. And I do think this will set up future topics still. Four sources today. First and foremost, I used the book Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan and Soviet Communism by Tatyana Linkoeva. I also used the book Sinister Forces, A Grimoire of American Political Witchcraft, Volume 2, A Warm Gun by Peter Lavenda. I also used the excellent article, An Attempt on the Life of Tsarevich Nicholas by Alexander Meshoyanko. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Check out my Patreon. For $5 a month, you can get double the content. Now I need to be on my way to Nikolaevsk. See you next week, and God bless.